This season, Taniela speaks to endometriosis and chronic illness patients, those who are going through or have gone through the pain and the diagnosis of endometriosis and are navigating this extremely common but poorly understood condition. Over the last few years, an army of patients have arisen. They are speaking out, fighting back, doing their own research and raising awareness of endometriosis. Let's listen to these brave warriors who have decided that enough is enough and who will stop at nothing to reclaim their health. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of Not Defined by Endo. Today's episode is with Amy Caffelli, a powerhouse and amazing advocate in the world of endometriosis and chronic illness. Amy has endometriosis and she's also been diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, fibromyalgia, mast cell activation syndrome, and small intestine bacterial overgrowth. She was diagnosed with endo at 33, 16 years after her symptoms began. Amy is the content creator of the popular podcast called In 16 Years of Endometriosis. With her co-host Brittany, they laugh, cry, and shout about all things endometriosis. Amy is also the author of Finding Peace with a Devastating Disease. It is a beautifully raw and honest collection of 76 reflections on acceptance, meaning, and self-compassion. On Amy's website and Instagram, you can find accurate information and trustworthy resources for endometriosis. All of this information can be found in the show notes. So join me today and let's listen to Amy's inspirational story. Hi, Amy. Nice to see you again. Hi, Tani. Welcome to the show. And thank you so much for once again accepting to be on my show. It feels like just yesterday that we were on each other's podcasts together talking about bias in healthcare right? So long ago, though, I think like maybe a year and a half ago. But yeah, it does feel like yesterday. Sometimes I'm like, where's my life going? <laughs> I know I feel the same time is flying. I feel like we should just get rid of um, 2019-20 and 21. Because since COVID, time has just been like disappearing, <laughs> even more than it used to do before. <laughs> But yeah, so thank you so much. Um, welcome to this season of Not Defined by Endo podcast. My plan for this season is to speak to endometriosis warriors, people who have been through so much in our community, and especially speaking to you because you are a beacon in our community. Um, for those who don't know and those listening, Amy is the host and producer and editor and everything <laughs> she owns in 16 years of endo, where she and her lovely friend Brittany have conversations about endometriosis, their experiences, and they do a lot of research, which is quite amazing. A lot more research than most of our healthcare professionals do. And there's so much to learn from that podcast. So for those who are listening, Amy is the host and it will be in the show notes. So please have a look at her podcast. And now let me get back to talking to you. I just had to quickly do that and say, let me tell everyone about Amy. <laughs> well, thank you, Tani, so much for that warm welcome. I really appreciate it. Yes, uh, my name is Amy Corfelli. I am the host of the podcast in 16 Years of Endometriosis. So um, hello to anyone, any cross listeners of both of our podcasts. 
I'll expand a little bit about what you said about our podcast, but basically it's a podcast about living with endometriosis, living with chronic illness. It's with my best friend, Brittany. And the goal of the podcast is just to talk about all aspects of endometriosis, everything from the most embarrassing experiences to research and disease advocacy, but to do it in a really fun way with a best friend and to just joke about our body parts and have a good time doing it, you know, and I think we just try to make learning fun, basically, and we try to destigmatize so many aspects of endometriosis, because unfortunately, endometriosis has been equated with being a menstrual disease, which it's not, it's a full body disease. It's been found in all 11 body systems and in every major visceral organ. And as we know, suffering with endometriosis is that, you know, it affects our full body. Like we have systemic effects, chronic inflammation, and we feel our symptoms in our whole body, most of many of us. So we really try to destigmatize so many aspects of living with endometriosis, whether that's constipation, diarrhea, incontinence, problems with urination, you know, painful sex, um, debilitating periods. We just really are trying to make a space where we can openly speak about our daily lives because I think for so many of us, like for me, you know, I work I have a job, I work every day and I I can't bring that part of myself to my job because of the way that you know, it's viewed as unprofessional to talk about your diarrhea and your flatulence and your painful sex and, you know, how your vulva burns when you sit in a chair. So we're really trying to make a space where we actually can speak about it and speak about it openly, no hold back and take away that shame that we can feel that and that I certainly felt for so many years of my life for over a decade, so much shame and so much stigma and taboo. And I don't want to feel shame anymore because there's nothing shameful about menstruating. There's nothing shameful about having a disease. There's nothing shameful about having bowel and bladder dysfunction. Millions of people worldwide have these problems. And the fact that there is so much shame, societal shame, unnecessary shame around these conditions, around certain bodily functions is holding us back from disease research is holding us back from being able to speak to our doctors openly about it is holding us back from being able to get support and accommodations that we need, whether that be at work or with our family or with our friends or with strangers. So that's something that's really important to me is just openly talking about every single aspect of endometriosis and nothing is TMI for me ever. And especially in the podcast. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. What you're doing with Brittany is so amazing. Honestly, I feel like I'm a bit jealous. Like I want a best friend to talk about all these things with as well. (laughs) But that's okay. Thank you so much. And I think what you said about shame is so important. I feel like that's one of the first things I felt when I was diagnosed with endometriosis, like, why would I be the one to have this condition amongst all my friends? I'm the only one. Why am I going through this? What did I do wrong that made this happen? There must be something, um, you know, in my lifestyle or in my genetics. Like I just really felt that shame um, and it was hard to talk about, but um, I think what you're doing is pretty amazing, you know, talking about it, destigmatizing it and, 
doing all of this in a very fun way. Like everyone who has listened to your podcast knows how much laughter goes on there. So thank you again. Thank you so much. So let's begin. I want to know more about who Amy is. Tell me about yourself. Who is Amy and who was she before her diagnosis of endometriosis? When were you diagnosed? What happened before then? I feel like that's a whole world and life before the diagnosis. But tell me more about who you are and let everyone know about you. Wow, what a saga. Amy before diagnosis. You know, to be honest, I barely remember the time before diagnosis. I mean, technically, I was only diagnosed three years ago when I was 33 years old, but when I think about, you know, getting sick with endometriosis, I was in my last year of high school. I was 17 years old. And like, it just doesn't feel like my life existed before I had endometriosis at this point. I've, um, I'm now 37. So that's 20 years I've been living with endometriosis symptoms and all the good things that, you know, come with endometriosis and multiple chronic co-conditions. I also have mass activation syndrome. I have fibromyalgia. I have interstitial cystitis, and I'm currently dealing with SIBO and I'm in perimenopause after losing my ovary to a 12 centimeter endometrioma. Not, not everyone loses their ovary to an endometrioma, but in my own case, I actually had a cancer scare. They weren't sure what it was because I wasn't diagnosed. So this, you know, grapefruit size mass showed up on the ultrasound. And I actually was uh, seeing an excision surgeon at that time, but he kicked me over to the the gynecological oncology surgeon to have that examined for cancer. So we decided to just remove the endometrioma and my ovary at that time. And then I went back uh, a couple months later for an excision surgery. So that was a really difficult 2018 Um, as I'm sure so many people recovering from, from surgery, you know, uh, know how hard it is. So gosh, what else did you ask me a little bit about me? Well, I think, you know, the person that I am now at 37 years old is so different than the person that I was when I first got sick. And also so different from the person that I was even five years ago to do a little bit of comparison. I can definitely say that when I first got sick with end, well, with endometriosis symptoms, it was obviously a, a wild ride where like for so many of us, we just suddenly don't feel good. I had very severe symptoms. I was having diarrhea 25 times a day. I was having chronic pelvic pain. I had extremely severe fatigue, much more severe than I have now where I literally, my eyes would close mid sentence and I would just have to lay down because I, I would pass out. Um, and that was happening multiple times a day. Sometimes I was sleeping for 20 hours a day. I was getting sores, you know, on my hips and my butt from how much time I was spending in my bed. I had ulcers all inside of my mouth. I had swollen lymph nodes. I had a constant fever. So I actually think that what was going on in addition to the, um, oh, and I got the shingles, uh, when I was 17. So that was, um, a fun adventure, not really. And I actually think what was going on back then is that. I had chronic fatigue syndrome in addition to endometriosis because I went after like two years, the doctors came across that I had really high antibodies for Epstein-Barr virus. The truth is it's all kind of hazy um, because it was so long ago and also because it was so confusing and also because so many doctors just, as so many of us know, they were running tests and they're saying, oh, well, you know, this is kind of elevated or this is really elevated, but we don't really think that's your problem. Even with the Epstein-Barr, they were like, 
well, you have extremely high antibodies to the Epstein-Barr virus. And, you know, that's not normal, but we don't think that's your problem. It's like, hello, I'm ex- like, I have all the symptoms of chronic fatigue. Mm. How, how do you not like equate one with the other? So there was so much dismissal from doctors. There was so much medical gaslighting. There was so much normalizing. Oh, you're incapacitating menstrual pain where you're vomiting and writhing on the floor and passing out in your bowel movements. Like that's totally normal. You know, that's just part of uh, quote unquote, uh, being a menstruator or quote unquote, being a woman. So I also, at that time, I was so different. Um, I didn't have family support when I was going through all this back when I was in high school and college, I was going to the uh, appointments by myself at 17, 18 years old, trying to make these decisions by myself. And I really lacked confidence. I really lacked trust in myself. So I really deeply internalized every time the doctor said, these tests are normal. There's nothing wrong with you. Every time the doctor said, well, this is this blood result or this test came back kind of abnormal, but we don't really think that's what it is in your case. Um, There's nothing wrong with you. It just kept getting internalized in my mind that there's nothing wrong with me, which, you know, led to me just thinking like I'm broken and this is my fault and I'm flawed. And I think also for me, since I came out of um, my childhood with a lot of childhood trauma and in a home with a lot of dysfunction and a home where I just, you know, there wasn't a lot of psychological safety and there was there its own problems of gaslighting and dismissal. I, I just wasn't equipped to fight for myself with the doctors. And I truly think that that is one of the reasons why my diagnosis took so long. And of course, the fact that there's so much myths and misinformation on endometriosis. In fact, I had a doctor at 19 years old do I suspect endometriosis because then I was having these, uh, they were, they told me I was having chocolate cysts, but -hmm. they didn't tell me it was endometriosis. They were like, oh, you're having chocolate cysts. And then they were rupturing and I had like multiple cysts, but no one mentioned endometriosis. They were just like, oh, you're having these chocolate cysts and you should go on birth control. So I was on all these different, trying out different birth controls, but they were really affected my mental health. So I would try one. And after like three months, I would tell the doctor, like, you know, this has made me feel like I'm not myself. I'm really weepy. I'm actually one, you know, one of them made me feel like paranoid. Like I felt like people wanted to harm me. And like, I, when I was like alone in the dark, you know, just like walking on the camp college campus, I was like really scared that someone was going to harm me. And, you know, so I was having a lot of effect on my mental health and I would tell the doctors and they would say things like, Oh, you just have to stick with it. Like sometimes side effects go away after six months. And it's like, no, I, I, I can't just quote unquote, stick with a a medication that is making me feel even worse. Yeah. Paranoid and scared. And you know, that I, that's just, that's, that's not good advice, you know, and that's just like classic patient dismissal and, you know, gaslighting. So I just kept switching birth controls. Um, I tried like five different ones. I tried the Depo-Provera shot, which really you know, it works for some people. And that really helps some people with their endometriosis symptoms, but it just really uh, made my mental health the worst that it ever has been. I was severely depressed and the doctor that I was seeing. So I saw like multiple doctors um, in terms of gynecologists I saw maybe like two or three different gynecologists. And then of course I saw doctors who for like infectious diseases, which is how they found about the Epstein-Barr 
um, antibodies. I also saw gastrointestinal doctors because I had diarrhea 25 times a day, which doctors then were telling me, oh, you can't have diarrhea 25 times a day. It's like, you want, you want me to like take a video every time I do it with a timestamp or like, what do you, what do you need to believe me? You know, you think I'm making this up. I saw urologists because I had to go pee like 30 times a day. I couldn't hold it. I was leaking. I was having incontinence. I was having, um, major burning, uh, when I, uh, urinated, you know, if I was going to have intercourse, sometimes I was accidentally peeing during intercourse, you know, so there were major, there's major dysfunction happening within my body, within my organs and doctors were doing tests, but when they quote unquote found nothing, they were just like, oh, you're a teenager. Oh, you're dramatic. You know, and because I was there alone, I, it was really hard to get them to take me seriously further. In fact, some doctors said things like, like after my colonoscopy came back negative, the doctor, and I started crying and I was like, I don't understand what's wrong with me. I've been sick for two years at that point. That was my second colonoscopy in a year. You know, I had lost so much weight because of all the diarrhea. I was having kidney stones. I had over 10 kidney stones from chronic dehydration from the diarrhea. So like there was something really wrong with me. And the doctor said, you need to stop crying. There's nothing wrong with you. You should be, you should be happy that you don't have Crohn's colitis or cancer. I don't know why you're not happy about that. And I was like, I am happy, but I, my life is in the toilet, like literally and figuratively how like help me, like help me. So I think like so many of us, um, the road to diagnosis was really paved with dismissal and gaslighting and a lack of trust in myself. And in fact, when I was 19 years old, a doctor suspected that I had endometriosis and she did exploratory laparoscopy. And after the surgery, she told me that I did not have endometriosis, that everything was perfect, that I had beautiful ovary and uterus. And at that time, I, w- I didn't know anything about endometriosis. So of course, when a doctor told me you don't have endometriosis, I was like, oh, okay, I don't have endometriosis. And then the next doctor that I saw, I'm a different gynecologist because I moved at that point, I was in another city. You know, they also said, oh, it sounds like endometriosis. Let's do an ultrasound. And when they didn't find anything on the ultrasound, they told me, oh, you definitely don't have endometriosis. And, you know, now knowing about endometriosis, I mean, we know that ultrasounds do not rule out endometriosis. Some endometriosis can be seen on ultrasound, but a lot of endometriosis can't be seen on ultrasound, like superficial endometriosis. It also depends on the ultrasound technician and it's, you know, the doing an ultrasound is operator dependent. And there's a big difference between sticking, inserting the probe in for, you know, a quick two minute ultrasound or doing a systematic ultrasound for 40 minutes where they go compartment by compartment, checking all the different organs, the movement between the organs. So there is a right and a wrong way to do an ultrasound with endometriosis to try to pick something up. And of course, not everything can be picked up. And I'll tell you that doctor did a two minute, like quick sweep, you know, and quote unquote, saw nothing and told me I had no endo, the same with the laparoscopy. She told me that I didn't have endometriosis, but looking knowing all that I know today as an advocate, looking back, I'm pretty sure she had no idea how to recognize endometriosis. That wasn't a black powder burn. She probably only was looking for like a black powder burn lesion, had no idea that there's endometriosis in a variety of other colors. She probably did not 
check anywhere past my uterus and my ovaries. She probably didn't lift up any of the organs, look at my intestines, you know, so there's just huge problems and barriers in being diagnosed. And we, as the patient shouldn't have to go into our, to see our doctor, knowing all about a disease that we suspect that we might have, you know, so the patient is really done a disservice by the medical community today because the lack of medical education on endometriosis, the lack of knowledge, it, it affects us directly. It leads to misdiagnosis, poor outcomes. You know, once you get diagnosed, being told that certain quote unquote treatments, which are actually management tools for symptoms, being told that they treat the disease like medications when they don't. So, okay. I guess that's a little bit about my diagnostic story, my, my journey to diagnosis. And I will kick it back over to you. (laughs) Wow, Amy, there's so much to unpack there, to be honest with you, so much to unpack. I think what you, your journey has been rough and I really applaud you and your strength for being able to, you know, get through the initial phases of your life of being, you know, up to diagnosis and then from diagnosis to being an actual advocate to be a loud voice in the community helping loads and loads of women but what you said is so important because even I when I was diagnosed you know when you mentioned an ultrasound not being able to rule out endometriosis however I was the first diagnosed with endometriosis via ultrasound and this is because mine was already very severe I had severe adhesions but like you said the ultrasound didn't take two minutes because that's what they do when they just want to have a quick quick sweep of your uterus or ovaries. But for that ultrasound, the guy actually, the doctor actually took his time. He took over 30 minutes and he went from, organ. I couldn't even believe how much they could see with an ultrasound, you know. And yes, you're right. It depends on, you know, the skill of whoever is doing the ultrasound. And it also depends on the machine because some, some ultrasound machines are, are, you know, more sensitive and stronger than others, I guess. So um, that's kind of what part of the problem. And there's so much dismissal. And what you just mentioned about the um, doctor saying to you, um, you should be happy. It's not, you know, Crohn's or it's not cancer. They say to so many of us. One, someone I spoke to recently told me that the doctor said, the surgeon, after doing her surgery, actually said, I've done my job. Why isn't your body doing yours? Yep, that happened, honestly. And I'm like, this is horrible. Like, I can't believe that a doctor who is supposed to be, you know, you know, don't they have rules and laws and um, thing codes that they have to live by? And how can you say that to a patient, someone who is probably young, who has no reason, you know, to lie about what she's going through and who doesn't know what's going, what's happening to her body? So yeah, there's so much to say about um, the dismissal, but I believe that as we continue to talk about it, raise awareness. Like you said, it doesn't make sense that a patient is having to do a lot of research. And taking like a lot of evidence to the doctor before they can believe you or listen to you or even do more investigations. And that's horrible. So we'll continue to fight for that. But I wanted to touch on um, you saying that your patients are usually dismissed. If say there's a young, you know, 15, 16, 17 year old girl listening to this, even a 30 something year old woman listening to this um, and who is going through all of these conditions or all of these symptoms and doesn't know what to do. How would you, you know, advise that they stand up and fight for themselves when they go to their doctors or physicians? I think something that 
is really hard to do is to learn to trust yourself and to trust your voice. And I think in society, in our daily lives, we have so many different avenues and telling us that we shouldn't trust ourselves, like telling us that we're not good enough. You know, I mean, that's really like the basic standard of marketing and advertising and selling us things is like, you are not beautiful enough, sexy enough, cool enough, glamorous enough, XYZ enough until you own X product, you know? So it's, it's, we are bombarded all day long with standards and quote unquote standards of what society says is like good enough and productive enough. And, you know, we should always be doing, and we should be more XYZ in terms of our appearance and XYZ in terms of the way we are at work or with our families. And it is so difficult, I think, to come into ourselves and to, to realize I am enough. You know, I, I am enough. I, I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. No one on this earth is perfect, but I am enough and I can trust myself. I can trust my voice and I can trust my body. And I think that is a long process. I definitely, I don't think that's something that we just, we can learn overnight, considering that most of us for all of our lives have been hearing messages of not enough. And even messages of not enough can come in subtle ways where, for example, you get on, like uh, you have a math test and you're, you know, you're, you're not so great at math, but you did really well. You got a B, a B on this math test and you bring it home and your parents might be like, oh, why didn't you get an A? And it's like a B is a great grade, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like these, these little ways that, you know, over and over and over, we can get these messages that we're not enough. They can be really subtle where we can't even, I can't even pinpoint anyone telling me like, you're not good enough or you're not adequate enough. But that was definitely the message that I lived from was a lack of self-worth and, a, and because of that, a lack of self-confidence. So I think, um, as I was saying earlier, like I'm so different than I was 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago. And one of the major differences is that I've come into my voice and I just realized that I am who I am and like this, this is who I am. And of course, there are things that I want to work on. Of course, there are things that, um, you know, I, I'm trying to change about myself, but there are also so many wonderful qualities about myself. And so realizing my self-worth and actually living from my self-worth has been completely life-changing, completely transformational because now when I go to the doctor, I am still dismissed sometimes, especially like as I was trying to get a recent diagnosis just um, two years ago for the mass activation syndrome. And even four years ago, when I was trying to get diagnosed with endo at 33 years old, I still had to go to four different gynecologists before one even mentioned endometriosis. And at that point, it's like I had my self-confidence. I had much more education um, and knowledge and awareness about how to speak about my pain, about how to speak about my body parts and about the different things that were affecting me, perhaps different than when I was younger, when I would just be like, oh my gosh, it's I have so much pain. Like now I know how to point to the body part and say, the pain feels really deep and it's stabbing. And I 
the, you know, the pain is intermittent or constant, or I have pain for three hours a day at, at, you know, um, level 10, and then it drops down to level eight for the rest of the day. Like I really am able to have body literacy now, which I wasn't, which I didn't have uh, 15, 20 years ago, because again, we're not taught, we're not taught how to do any of that. But even so I was still actively dismissed by the doctors that I saw. But this time when the doctor, the first doctor said to me, I was like, oh, my, you know, my incapacitating periods and my painful sex, and my painful bowel movements. This time I knew, like I knew in my core that something was wrong. Like I no longer thought, oh, okay. Like I'm broken. This is just like who I am. And this is my normal. I, I like, by, by the time I got to 33, my symptoms had progressed so much and I was having incapacitating pain. Like I would drink a glass of cold water and I would be thrown to the floor from what is typically like my menstrual cramps in the middle of the cycle. You know, I'd be like on day seven, nowhere near my menstrual cycle. That hell would have been over with already. Then I would drink a glass of water and I would just be like thrown to the ground for three hours or writhing with like, you know, searing pain in my abdomen. I was like, this is not right. Like I should not be passing out during bowel movements. You know, my bladder should not be burning every time I pee. I should not be waking up eight times a night to go pee. And I finally had that, that determination and, and that like self-knowing that I need to find medical help for myself, um, which I had 20 years ago. But again, it was like tape. It was like under layers of self-doubt and lack of self-trust. So, but this time I really, you know, the doctor, this first doctor I saw, she said, oh, you know, what's really good for that birth control. And it's like, okay, yeah, sure. Birth control might manage symptoms, never manage mine. Yes. It manages symptoms, but like, that's not, you're not even looking into the reason why I have these symptoms. Like you're not. So I was just like, okay, thank you so much for your opinion, because that's all the doctors are giving. They're giving their opinion, not, not true facts. They're giving their opinion based on their experience, their knowledge. And we all know that, well, I didn't know 20 years ago, but I know now that doctors are just humans. Doctors have biases. Doctors have holes in their knowledge. Doctors don't know everything. Um, so I was like, thank you for your opinion. And I was just like, bye, you know, and have to go to another doctor who told me the same thing. And I had to go to another doctor and I know that it's hard. It can be very hard to go to multiple doctors, depending on your insurance, depending on where you are in the world. Um, so it's really lucky and privileged that, you know, I am working right now and I do have an insurance plan. That's it's like an open plan where I don't need a referral to mm -hmm. go to different doctors. And I just see doctors at a $30 copay. So I was able to doctor hop until I finally found a doctor that, um, that listened, but of course that is not the case for everyone. But I think, you know, my best advice is to just really trust yourself. And if you think something is wrong with your body, then it, it may very well be and find community, find people who can support you, get a second opinion if that's possible. You know, if you're not able to find your voice in the doctor's office, which is really scary and which may involve practicing. I used to practice when I was first finding my voice, I would write down, okay, if the doctor dismisses me, this is what I, you know, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say my symptoms are real. My pain is real. Here's a list. I printed it out for you, or I have it on my phone to show you here. Here's a list of what's happening in my body. And if you don't know how to help me, please refer me to someone that you think will. And I used to practice that in the mirror 
with a piece of paper and I would be crying and sobbing and pausing and, and, you know, not having fluid speaking because I was very nervous. You know, now when I go, I'm just like, oh, is that your opinion? Bye. But, you know, at the beginning, it was so, so difficult. And if it's very difficult for you to advocate, just know that that's normal. That's it's normal because finding our voice, I think is, is a skill. And it's something that, um, I don't think many of us naturally have. I think that's something that we come into in time. So see if you can bring someone to your appointments that can advocate for you, because often it's a lot easier for someone to advocate for us because, you know, for example, if I was going with my best friend to the doctor's appointments, I wouldn't let my, the doctor talk to my best friend and say, oh, you should just, oh, you have diarrhea 25 times a day, but you should be happy. It's not cancer. It's like, yeah, but she still has diarrhea 25 times a day. So like, sure. Woohoo. It's not cancer. I mean, that's really positive. And that's a really, that's a really good news because cancer is very serious and, and scary, but also that doesn't help my friend who has diarrhea 25 times a day. But when I try to do that for myself, all of those layers of shame and okay, there's something wrong with me and this is my fault come in, you know, and I really saw that with my sister, she got diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, um, you know, which the doctor said, I should be so thankful I didn't have. And about a year later, my my sister actually got diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and I was very thankful I did not have that, but I never once thought as my sister was going through her, her journey, she had a very severe case of ulcerative colitis. She actually ended up having her large intestines removed and having an elostomy bag at 16 years old. So it was a very, it was a very severe case and it, and it was a very uh, difficult journey for her to be on. And I never once ever thought in my head, Oh, my sister's sick because she deserves it. Oh, my sister's sick because um, she's a loser. She's a failure. She's weak. She's not good enough. She's inadequate. She should have been a nicer person. Um, she's being punished. I never, ever thought that about her. And I never would. It was, it was absurd. Like the idea of thinking that about my sister was absurd, but that's all I thought about myself all the time. So then, you know, I, along the way, I had these eye-opening moments when I was like, how come I so easily give all this love and um, trust and knowing to other people? And I cannot give that to myself. Wow, Amy, your responses are always so packed. I'm like, oh my God, I want to cry. <laughs> but yes, 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 yes to everything you said. We always have so much, we're not as kind to ourselves as we are to others. And that's something that, everyone listening should think about and you know deal with in their lives as well you have to be kind to yourself you have to find your own voice and um everything you've said has is so true I remember that I also used to be so nervous going to the hospital like I literally used to shake and I started writing my questions down and even sometimes you know that when you write your questions down and you get there you are kind of embarrassed to bring out the questions I don't know if that ever happened to you you're like should I bring it out will I look silly you know now I bring it out and I say, sorry, give me a second. I just want to read it. I just want to, because sometimes we think, oh, I think I wrote it down. I might remember the questions. But when you get there, everything just flies out of your head. I think it's because you're being rushed. 
most of the time they'll say you have just 10 minutes for you know the consultation and you really have to go there prepared like you're going for battle unfortunately is the fact but yes that's kind of one of the ways that you can go in there and be prepared and be ready to fight for you know for your health so that's so important now let's talk about treatments for endometriosis. I know you said you had, um, you know, one of your ovaries removed, um, even though it was prior to, it was prior to your diagnosis, right, for endometriosis. So it was because of the scare. Um, but what treatments have you had for endometriosis and what treatments should people, the listeners be aware of that are, you know, some of treatments, I know that some of them are, you know, the people that say go get birth control and you'll be fine. You know, someone actually said that to me while I hadn't even been diagnosed with endometriosis and I was still in the process of being um, my investigation and trying to understand what was wrong with me. And the man um, just said, well, I will just put you on, on birth control. And if your symptoms get better, then I'll just say that you have endometriosis. I'm like, how, what does that even mean? You can't just guess. You can't just try something and say if that happens then I'll just say you have like they don't it doesn't work that way and immediately I was like bye-bye I went back to the other physician who I was waiting for but who had you know longer waiting times I was like I'd rather wait for someone that cares someone that is already you know interested in endometriosis and someone that would not just dismiss me so that's something I remembered when you were talking about about your experiences so tell me about treatment methods or treatments for endometriosis and um, what people should be expecting and what they should probably say no to or what they should do their research um, about yeah I think you know with treatments for endometriosis I mean it's definitely individual and there's not a one-size-fits-all there are various so there's treatment and then there's management options and I think Unfortunately, the word treatment is applied to all of the options available, but many of the options are actually just management of symptoms and not actually treating the disease. My recommendation to anyone, you know, who's looking into endometriosis treatment is is to really do your research. And again, it's sad that we have to do so much research, but the, the honest truth is that the majority of doctors do not know how to treat endometriosis. They've been given like a 20 minute lecture on endometriosis in medical school, who knows how many years ago. And a lot of doctors are not seeing endometriosis patients regularly. So it's like you come in and the doctor is more used to doing um, like OB, like obstetrics kind of work. So, you know, the doctor is delivering babies, dealing with um, people who are pregnant um, and other aspects that are not you know, endometriosis, which is a very complex disease. So there are a lot of um, people, you know, in the endometriosis field who want endometriosis to become its own subspecialty within gynecology, the same way that gynecological cancer has become its own subspecialty. So that when a person, when it's suspected that a person has endometriosis, they can be kicked over to an actual specialist in in endometriosis who would then know how to treat the disease from a multidisciplinary approach and then lay all of the options on the table, everything from, you know, actual treatment, which is excision surgery to management options, which are other types of surgeries and can include uh, hormonal medication, diet and lifestyle and things like that. But unfortunately, 
what most of us are seeing, and I think what you were just saying that you've seen, Tenny, what I've seen is that you go to the regular old gynecologist because that's that's who you have access to and that's who's available for, for many of us. You know, we don't automatically go off to um, an excision surgeon or an endometriosis expert. And I will also just make a commentary here that the word expert or specialist for endometriosis has no... Um, like standardization, no clinical backing. So any person can say that they're an endometriosis specialist. Like, heck, I could say I'm an endometriosis specialist. And I kind of feel like I'm more specialist than more of the doctors that I've seen. And I'm not even a medical professional. So it's really, you know, it's it's good to know that, unfortunately, I think our medical, the governing medical bodies are failing us. And endometriosis is not being taken seriously, as seriously as it should be. And that's directly affecting our care. So in an ideal world, we would go to the doctor and the doctor would immediately recognize our symptoms and say, oh my gosh, these are the symptoms of endometriosis, or these could be the symptoms of endometriosis. Let's, you know, get you over to an expert, an actual expert, you know, a specialty center with actual endometriosis specialists where that name actually meant something and then, you know, you would be in the hands of the endometriosis specialist who could lay out all the options. And the endometriosis specialist would be a person who doesn't deliver babies, who doesn't do other gynecological or obstetric work, but instead who sees endometriosis every single day like that. They like eat, sleep and breathe endometriosis. And then that doctor would have, you know, the experience and the knowledge and the know-how to treat this very, very complex disease. But instead, we go to the gynecologist and the gynecologist either, you know, first, um, we'd all talked for, at great length already about the dismissal. So you're fighting to be heard, fighting to be believed. Okay, you're finally, like, somewhat taken seriously. And, you know, then the doctor says either, okay, we think you have endometriosis, let's put you on birth control, because birth control in their mind is like the, you know, panacea of all anything that, you know, appears gynecological, like a, like a gynecological problem, it's like, oh my gosh, birth control is, you know, the end all be all. It's like, no, actually it's not. Um, so they, you know, either they'll put you on birth control. If you're here in the United States, they'll likely even bypass birth control or progestins. And they'll say, oh, you should go on Lupron or Alyssa right away. Um, because those have been marketed for endometriosis. So, you know, in the gynecologist, in the gynecologist's mind, the gynecologist who is not an expert, it's like, that's a tool. You know, a lot of these gynecologists now they've been marketed that like, oh, or Lissa is for endometriosis associated pain. So like if a patient has endometriosis, I should just give them more Lissa, you know, and they're not going deeper with you. They're not telling you that um, there is other uh, treatment and management options. And I think that's a huge disservice to the patient because first of all, excision surgery is the gold standard of endometriosis treatment excision surgery is the gold standard because it is the only treatment that actually removes endometriosis from, you know, the root to the tip. It removes the entire lesion with um, a clear margin. So it actually removes the disease from your body. And multiple studies have shown that, you know, excision isn't just hype, that excision really does have better outcomes than ablation and medical um, management. And, you know, better quality of life, better symptom uh, resolution, and for a longer time. So excision is the gold standard. 
But unfortunately, so many doctors either don't know about excision, don't believe in excision because a lot of articles write about surgery, like just endometriosis surgery. So they don't actually differentiate between excision and ablation. So, you know, you read these articles or research papers and they're lumping excision and ablation together and excision and ablation are so drastically different because ablation is the superficial burning of the endometriosis surface, but endometriosis is really like an iceberg. So even if you burn the surface above the water, there's still the root of the endometriosis. And oftentimes, even with superficial endometriosis, so there's superficial endometriosis, which is less than five millimeters deep into the um, peritoneum, or there's deep endometriosis, which is more than five millimeters, um, you know, deep into the peritoneum, even ablation is often not able to, to get superficial endometriosis because ablation only goes like, I think like two millimeters, you know, deep or something. So don't quote me on that, but I know that is a fact that basically don't quote me on the numbers. I mean, but you know, that is a fact that like ablation isn't even able to like completely treat superficial endometriosis because it really just burns the surface. And if you've ever seen videos comparing ablation and excision, you know, you can see that with ablation, they just, they literally go in with, you know, with uh, the tool that they use. And it almost looks like you're just torching, like taking a blowtorch and just torching the surface of the disease. So what happens is, you know, that can lead to more scar tissue that can lead to something called giant foreign cell body reaction or something, something of that nature, but basically like a reaction that your body has that can actually contribute, can contribute to more pain that can, you know, that leaves disease behind that, um, traps disease under scar tissue. So there are even, uh, medical professionals in the, in the field of endometriosis who want to ban ablation for endometriosis because ablation not only does not treat the disease, but it can leave, it can leave the patient, you know, worse further down the line because they, you know, now they have they can have more pain, they can have now more scar tissue, and they can have disease buried under the scar tissue. So, you know, there's a big difference between excision and ablation. Ablation also cannot typically get the endometriosis that's on delicate tissues like the bladder, the bowels, the diaphragm, because it's literally just going in there and burning. And so that can lead to damage on those tissues. But with excision, you know, they typically work with the multidisciplinary team and they're able to go in there often with the help of other surgeons like thoracic surgeon, if you have it on the diaphragm, the lung, um, the GI or urology general surgeon, if you have it on the bowel, the bladder, and they're able to completely remove the endometriosis from the body, which, you know, has those better long-term outcomes for the majority of patients. So it's really just a disservice that so many doctors don't know about excision, don't tell the patient about excision, don't refer the patient. And instead the patient goes, and like I said, they, they either offer them ablation, um, without talking about how it, it could lead to potentially, uh, further pain down the line for the patient, or they just offer the patient Lupron or Lissa, GnRH drugs, progestins, birth controls. And I do believe there is a place in endometriosis treatment for medical suppression but using medicines, using hormones, using medication does not treat the disease. It does not remove the disease, uh, get rid of the disease, dry up the disease. It's, and your endometriosis can still progress 
when you're on these medications. If you have surgery, your endometriosis can still recur post-surgery if you're on these medications. So there's a lot of myths out there about what medications can do. And those myths are often being propagated by the doctors themselves who don't have a thorough understanding of the medications. And one of the biggest problems is that doctors are not aware of potential long-term side effects in GnRH drugs, such as Lupron. So Lupron is a very, very serious medication that is being given out as if it were candy. And there are many people who, after stopping Lupron, continue to have long-term permanent side effects from, from Lupron. So there is a lot of information out there on that. In fact, on my website, uh, which is in 16years.com, which I imagine is in Tenny's show notes today, I have a whole link, like a huge list of links to um, talking about Lupron and all, all of this information, because I really just, as someone who has gone to the doctor so many times and not been given information about side effects, even when I took Depo-Provera, I mean, this was uh this was in 2004, I think. And the doctor told me that there was no side effects to Depo-Provera, which is a progestin shot. And the doctor, and I was like, I'm really nervous about, you know, they wanted me to keep staying on birth control. And I was like, I'm really nervous about birth control because they all really severely affect my mental health. Oftentimes they don't even help me with my, you know, symptoms, my physical symptoms. So they're really just like making me feel so much worse. And the doctor was like, oh no, sweetie, don't worry. This is a shot. And because it's a progestin only shot, there's no side effects. And that is just like bull, <clears throat> you know, mm-hmm. that is just, that is so not true. And even now depo Prevera has a black box warning on it for um, bone mineral density loss. If you're on it for a long time. So like there are side effects, but the doctor, I don't think the doctor was tricking me. I think the doctor genuinely did not know that there were side effects when of course there are side effects, there are side effects to everything. You can even have side effects from drinking too much water. I I mean, you know, when, when you put things in your body, they have chemical reactions, especially pharmacological agents that are designed to manipulate, you know, different things in your body, whether that be, you know, Tylenol or Panadol or, or, uh, progestins or, you know, GnRH drugs, like all of that is designed to do something in your body. So of course it can make unwanted changes in your body as well as it affects other systems. So everyone has to choose what is the best treatment option for them. And, you know, for many people managing their symptoms using birth controls or progestins or diet and lifestyle, I, you know, I'm really into diet and lifestyle. I've been using diet and lifestyle for probably 11 or well, at this point, I think 14 or 15 years to try to manage my symptoms because, you know, hormonal management, um, just made me feel so much worse, but everyone needs to choose what is best for them. But unfortunately it's really hard to choose what is best for our individual situation when we don't have all the information because the doctor has not given us all the information and there, you know, through my podcast, I get a lot of, uh, DMS on Instagram. I get a lot of emails because this is the kind of information, you know, we do episodes on in the podcast. And I get a lot of people who write me and say, like, my doctor thinks I have endometriosis. And she said, I should just go on or for the rest of my life. And it's like, um, you know, first of all, you can't be on or for more than a certain amount of time, six months on the high dose, two months, two years on the low dose. So it's like, you can't, it's not FDA approved for your whole life, (laughs) you know? And the fact that the doctor like thinks, 
oh, I have an endometri- I have a patient before me who has symptoms of what's probably endometriosis. I'm not going to run any, you know, I'm not going to try to confirm it with a diagnostic laparoscopy and pathology report. I'm not going to tell the patient about, you know, other options that the patient can do like excision or, um, diet and lifestyle or changes, which again, are only management, not treatment, but I'm not going to tell the patient anything I'm in my five minutes appointment. I'm going to, Oh, you have, you have painful periods and you, you know, you have chronic pelvic pain. Oh my goodness. Go on or Lissa for the rest of your life and, you know, wash my hands of you and problem solve. And again, Orlissa helps some people. There's other people that it doesn't help their symptoms or makes their, you know, Orlissa has, um, can have some pretty severe, um, mental health effects for, for some people, suicidal ideation, um, is listed right on the Orlissa, um, packet. So worsening of mental health, anxiety, and depression a lot. So, you know, the doctor didn't tell that person any of that, that, you know, it's just like, oh, here's your, here's your bandaid go away. And again, this, when I talk about this is, this is not in any way, like I am, you know, I don't want to shame anyone for using anything because endometriosis is really hard and we have to figure out how to survive and we have to get through our day. And we have, we can have incapacitating pain symptoms that literally ravage our lives, ravage our careers, ravage our really ravage our relationships, you know, um, make us terrified of our own bodily functions. I get it. Like I totally get it. And I know how hard it is to, to manage symptoms. I know how hard it is to get treatment. So whatever we choose, that's right for us. Like I support that, but what I don't support is doctors not giving full information so that patients can give informed consent. And that really fires me up. And that really makes me feel angry because that has happened to me, you know, myself so many times. And I see that happening to people in our community every single day that they're put on a drug like Lupron right away. They don't even know if the person has endometriosis. And then, you know, later down the line, now that that person has, um, like permanent bone pain because of the like two years that they spent on Lupron, which again is over the maximum time that Lupron's been approved by the FDA, which is one year. So like, it just makes me so angry how we're being treated as patients. Like, is our pain not important? Is our quality of life not important? Like, are we not important? Because that's, that is what I feel like. Do we not matter? And we do matter. We absolutely matter. And you know, I'm just so glad that you, Tanny, are doing a podcast. I have a podcast. There's so many social media platforms, um, you know, Instagram, Twitter, everything out there, people talking about this and we're educating each other because, you know, goodness knows the doctor, but most of the doctors are not educating us. So that burden, another burden has fallen on us to educate each other and inform each other and look out for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Very well spoken, Amy. Thank you very much for that. Um, thank you so much for sharing about the treatments and what you've experienced. And I hope that anyone listening, like Amy has said, you need to you know, speak for yourself. You need to do your research and you need to go to your doctor's armed with information. There are loads of times that the doctors will be like, my years of medical training, you don't compare it to Google or something. But at the end of the day, it's your body, it's your life. And um, a lot of the time, you, what you've, the research you've done is even more important than what the five minutes of um, information that the doctor is going to give you or the, you know, just offering you a bandaid like a release or Lupron. And just so that people don't get it wrong, like Amy has said, Lupron 
or a Elisa or any other GNRH. I have been on a GNRH before for about three months as well. So they can, they have their place and there are people that they actually work for, but it's a band-aid and it's not a solution. It's not treatment. It's a management method. So if you have to do it, please don't feel any shame and don't feel like you you know, you're being chastised for doing that, but just go in informed and, you know, understand the long-term effects, understand. Because I remember that when I was on GNRH, I had a lot of shoulder pain as well. Um, and I didn't get any um, estrogen add back or anything. So that, th- yes, I didn't. So those are things that, you know, we have to understand before we get on any treatment methods. But Amy, you also mentioned diet and lifestyle a lot. What kinds of, um, you know, dietary changes and lifestyle changes did you make in your life? Just so that people understand a bit more about what they could be doing. But like we've said, endometriosis is very individual. So you have to figure out what works for you. But what has worked for you so far, Amy? Yeah, I'm really into diet and lifestyle changes. Um, and I began them when I, about three years after I got sick, when no one, no one, like I said, no one could figure out what was wrong. And I was actually told by a doctor, you know, oh, that that's weird. Your Epstein-Barr antibodies are really weird, but like, we don't think that's what's going on with you, et cetera. And funnily enough, the next day I went to Goodwill, which is a secondhand store here in the United States. And um, I was like on my way to the shoe section when I went by all these books and they were all like in boxes on the floor, just like piles of books. And on the very top, there was a book that said something like the Epstein-Barr virus. And it was really old looking, like it looked like it had been written in like 1990. It was like 2004, I think at that point. And so it looked like, like old and like this red block lettering. And I was just like, wow, you know, just yesterday they told me about Epstein-Barr virus. And that was the, that was the first lead that was the first thing anyone had told me in like two years of testing that could even though the doctor said like he didn't think that was what was wrong it was just like still you said something to me like still I got a clue and then I found this book and I so I bought the book it was 50 cents um I bought the book and right underneath the book was another book about um like habits for chronic habits for beating chronic fatigue syndrome or something like that I don't remember the titles but Um, So I bought those two books and I just devoured them and they were just all about changing your, your diet, your lifestyle, the way you live. Um, So I just enacted these radical changes to my life. Um, I, you know, at the beginning, um, for me at the beginning, it was about cutting out a lot of stuff, but as I became more refined in my knowledge of diet and lifestyle, it really became more now about adding back in. And I think that's where a lot of people, um, at first it's just like, Oh, okay. I want to go on an anti-inflammatory diet, for example, which actually was the the diet recommended in the, in the book for Epstein-Barr. And it was about going on an anti-inflammatory diet. So it was like cut out coffee, cut out alcohol, cut out gluten, cut out grains, um, cut out red meat, cut out, it cut out sugar, cut out, um, industrial seed oil. So those are things like canola, vegetable, things like that. So you m- would rely on like olive oil, avocado oil, coconut oil. Um, so at first it was just all about like cutting out. So it was, it felt so restrictive, like, especially if you're coming from a diet, like if you're often following a, the standard American diet, as it's called here, you know, is eating like a lot of takeout, a lot of frozen foods, a lot of packaged rice, a lot of packaged 
um, pastas. So cutting out gluten, cutting out sugar, cutting out packaged food was like, I have nothing to eat and I am so depressed and deprived and miserable. Um, but later on, it's not for like five years, but later on, I, I learned um, about adding things back in. And that's actually um, at that time I had come across the paleo diet and the paleo diet is uh, really, really helped me. But I just want to be clear, like the paleo diet is not about eating meat. The paleo diet is really just about, it's, it's actually um, a great anti-inflammatory diet, but it's just about eating foods that have worked for the human body, like throughout history. So, you know, um, you're eating, um, fruits and vegetables, you're eating, you know, high quality, uh, oils, you're eating nuts and seeds, high quality meats. You're not just like eating a bunch of meat, like a caveman. Um, so I just want to be clear. Cause I think, you know, if I say the paleo diet, there's a lot of re- recoil from people. Cause I'm, I know there's a lot of like stuff out there. Oh, the paleo diet. And a lot of like misconceptions and also just people who are paleo, you know, like pushing their lifestyle. So I just want to make it clear, like, I'm not doing that. Um, I'm just saying that that's something that really, really helped me because when I learned, like when I started becoming familiar with the paleo diet, I just found like websites and blogs about people talking about what they cut in. No one was talking about, oh my gosh, I cut out sugar. People were talking about like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that there were so many types of mushrooms and so many types of nuts. And I didn't know about, like, I didn't know about all these things. Like I, I thought that salad was lettuce. I really, I didn't. And like, I vaguely knew about spinach, but I was like, spinach is gross. But now I'm like, Ooh, spinach is delicious if it's cooked. Right. But I didn't know about arugula and watercress. And I didn't know about fennel and turnips and beets. And, you know, I didn't come from a home where they did all these different cooking. So when I went to the grocery store, there, there was just tons, like in this vegetable section, I was like, I don't know what half these things are. And I'm scared of them and I don't know how to cook them. So for me, it was like, I was able to learn about getting enough protein, having healthy fats. And, and all of that, I think is a important when looking at diet and lifestyle is that it's not just about restricting yourself. It's not about restricting yourself. That's what it might seem at first, but it's really about having a a nutritious, nutrient dense diet and feeling satisfied, feeling full, getting the food that you need. And ever since I like went paleo, um, which was about five years after I changed over to like my really, really restrictive diet, like for the first five years, it was just all about like the restrictions. Like I can't eat this. I can't eat that. I can't eat that. And then when I went paleo, it was, it was just more about like, how do I nourish myself? How do I feel full? How do I eat foods that will give energy to my body? How will I eat foods that help me to feel my best, which my best is not symptom free, but, but my best, I do have symptoms every day, but now I feel my best that I'm able to work. Whereas, you know, when I first came out of college for like the first couple of years, I couldn't hold a job because my symptoms were in control of me. And now I'm more in control of my symptoms. So Um, those I think are really, they they take, they're really difficult. I think mindset shifts to learn, and it definitely took me a lot of time and I'm still working on it, you know? And then also apart from diet, there's, uh, like I no longer exercise, but I have daily movement every single day, but I don't do what I, I don't have anything that I consider quote unquote exercise. I am really into moving 
slowly, slow movement all the time. So like I take a walk every day. I do yoga every day. I stretch every day. I, you know, get up from my chair whenever I can, when I'm working, you know, I try to get enough sleep, eight hours of sleep, which sleep is really a struggle right now because of mass activation syndrome, because of perimenopause, it's like sleep does not want to come to me, you know, but I'm trying my best to get, to get enough sleep and to have habits that are more conducive to good Mm -hmm. sleep. Although no matter how great my habits are, I still spend like so many nights just, you know, awake staring at the ceiling, but then it comes down to, um, accepting that and, you know, being mindful around that. And like on nights when I can't sleep, not going down the anxiety rabbit hole, which is what I used to do, which is like, oh my gosh, I'm not sleeping. I'm going to feel terrible the next day. Now, how am I going to get my work project done? I'm going to be so exhausted. Oh, I can never sleep. This isn't fair. Like, why is the universe doing this to me? So like no longer going in that direction of, um, like self-hatred or self-criticism or just like why me or, you know, sometimes I feel frustrated, of course, when I don't sleep, which is often, I, I want to say like, I, I like do one night where I don't sleep and then the next night I pass out. And then I do one night where I don't sleep and the next night. And I've been doing that for like two years. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so um, I did get a really good sleep last night. I want to, I'm on the, I'm on the good day today. Okay. That's good. Um, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, trying now to, to have a balance between what can I change and what can I accept? And, you know, acceptance is, is really hard and it's a practice and I'm still trying to change so many things, but I'm trying to do the change with acceptance. So if I can't change something, then I'm not so attached to the outcome. Like, it's not like I have to get a good night's sleep or like my emotional world will crumble. It's like, no, I understand that. Like right now, while I'm trying to work through these issues that I have that, you know, some side effects, some symptoms of them are insomnia. Like I'm just, I just have insomnia and I'm just going to have to cope and deal with it and find strategies to still be able to get through my day and work. Um, but I don't, you know, I spent so much time feeling angry and frustrated. I spent like a decade of my life furious furious at the, like my body, furious at the world, furious at the medical um, professionals that had, you know, neglected and dismissed me. And I still have a healthy level of fury at times, but I'm trying to move through those feelings and just, you know, say, this is where I am. And and that's, and that's okay. And this is where I'm going to, this is where I'm going to be. And how can I live the best life I, that I can with where I am and, you know, with the body that I have and the diseases that I have and and the symptoms that I have you know when you were talking about um food and cutting things out and um, cutting things in is so important because I also I think initially my journey as well with my food I struggled as well at the beginning it was just everything about cutting out so cut out gluten dairy red meat um what else alcohol I wasn't really an alcohol drinker anyway um but yeah it was just cut out cut out cut out and then I started looking for gluten-free things and some of them were absolute crap to be honest with you they were disgusting so eventually yeah it was a struggle at first but eventually I started saying okay you know I used to love lots of snacks and biscuits what can I take instead okay there are oats you know kinds of snacks that I can mix together smoothies I like smoothies they're nice and um, I love spinach like that so that's kind of how I also realized that you don't just cut out 
um, well, I guess based on your journey and where you're, you are at, you might need to initially, but you need to also start cutting things in and getting nutrient-dense uh, foods because that's what really make you feel nourished and whole. So thank you very much for that. And I have one final question. Let's talk about your book. So for those listening, Amy is an author, a published author, and uh, you wrote the book, um, Tell me, t- you know what? I'm not. I'm going to just allow you tell me everything about the book. But I want you to tell us everything. Uh, well, not everything. So people should go and buy. <laughs> but tell us about the book and um, what inspired you to write that book and what the book is about and where people can find the book as well. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing up my book. Uh, so my book is called Finding Peace with a Devastating Disease, and there. 76 reflections on endometriosis and living with endometriosis. And at the end of every reflection, there is a self guided journaling prompt that the reader can do if they want to, that is related to the topic. I've heard from various people that the format of the book is really nice because since they are very short chapters, exploring different aspects, like, you know, there's a chapter on um, feeling like a burden. There's chapters on Uh, self-forgiveness. There's chapters on acceptance, on integrating your disease into your life, like finding new hobbies and joys that you can do with the symptoms that you have now. There's, you know, talking about grief in the book, um, the feelings of stigma and shame. So it really encompasses so many aspects, emotional aspects of living with this devastating disease. That's why I put it right in the title, because for so many of us, endometriosis is a devastating disease. And it certainly has been a devastating disease for me. My symptoms have been severe. Uh, They were severe for 16 years until I had excision surgery, which I was very um, lucky and privileged to have. But even after excision surgery, I'm still dealing with the fallout of so much damage to my body from having the disease untreated for so many years that I'm still struggling with so many symptoms. Excision drastically, drastically reduced my endometriosis symptoms and I have no endometriosis pain, which is just shocking considering that, you know, I used to have a period where I was incapacitated and going to the ER and I was like terrified to get my period for 16 years of my life. So I'm still like shocked that I don't have endometriosis pain, but I have interstitial cystitis and fibromyalgia and mass activation syndrome. And I lost my ovary. And there's just so many things that are, you know, directly or indirectly related to endometriosis that I'm still dealing with. I'm trying to live well with and trying to find a peace with. So the book is just really an exploration of of how of, I think it's an exploration of personal growth. And I, you know, the goal is that through reading the book and with the self-guided journaling prompts that it can help the reader in their own personal growth and the own exploration of what finding peace means to them, you know, cause I think finding peace is different for all of us. I think acceptance is a little bit different for all of us. And I've gotten a lot of really good feedback on the book, which makes me feel happy because I really did bear my soul in the book. Like I really 
did not hold back. And I really talked about thought patterns that I had around, you know, myself and my self-worth and feeling like a burden. And I talked about uh, very difficult moments of pain in the book. I speak about moments that felt very shameful for me and how I've learned to work through that so that those moments no longer feel shameful for me. Um, so it really is like trying to show the, the uh, emotional growth and the personal growth that I've had and that so many of us in the community have had or you know are currently having or are going to have. So my book is really just about how we can find joy in, you know, in the face of the pain caused by endometriosis and how we can, how we can stop spending so much energy resenting such a large piece of our lives because we have endometriosis and endometriosis is a part of our life, like it or not. And it sucks, you know, it's just, it really sucks to have an incurable chronic disease that has ravaged so many aspects of our life. And there's such ongoing grief and trauma so how can we live a good life anyway? What does a good life mean to us individually? You know, what does acceptance mean? And that's really what the book explores is, you know, we have endometriosis, we have chronic illness, but how can we still live a life that we're happy with? Even, even though we have pain every day, even though we have symptoms every single day, even though this disease has taken away so much from us, how can we emotionally be okay with that? So that's really what the book is about. Um, and the book is available. So it's called Finding Peace with a Devastating Disease. It's available as a paperback on Amazon in many countries around the world, UK, Canada, US, Australia, and a handful of other countries. And then it's available as an ebook. So it's available like as Kindle or um, an Apple book. Uh, it's available on Barnes and Noble as an ebook. So the paperback is only on Amazon, but the ebook is available on ebook retailers worldwide. So you can just, um, you know, take a look. And if you don't uh, want to purchase from Amazon, you could check out the ebook from other uh, different sellers online. All right. Thank you so much, Amy. I'll put the, I'll make sure to put um, the links in the show notes. And so anyone listening, I've read Amy's book and it's really pretty, really good. It's very good. Trust me. <laughs> so thank you so much, Amy, for coming on the show. Thank you for all your words of wisdom. Thank you for bearing, you know, your all sharing your story and giving so much good advice. Like I'm going to pick and I think I'm going to write notes and say, oh, Amy's advice number one, <laughs> be strong and fight for yourself. Um, and then there's no shame in everything that we're going through. So thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope you've enjoyed talking to me today. I know I'm no Britney, but I hope, <laughs> I hope you had fun too. Oh, you're funny. Well, you are not Brittany, but you are Tenny and you are my friend. Aww. And I did have a lovely time. Um, I always have a lovely time when we speak. Tenny, actually, this isn't the first time that we've spoken. We, we um, you know, we Zoom every once in a while to catch up with each other. But yeah, thank you, Tenny, for having me on the podcast. And thank you for having your podcast. It's a lot of work to have a podcast, um, you know, especially it is. Oh, it is. And uh, <laughs> 
you know, just thank you for having your platform, for advocating for us with endometriosis, for bringing various voices to your platform so that, you know, everyone listening can, um, can, can we can just feel like we're not alone because endometriosis can feel so isolating and chronic pain can be so isolating. And it's like every day in my life, there's so many people who just don't understand what I go through. And there are people who don't want to understand what I go through, you know, like acquaintances, coworkers, even some friends, it's like, they don't really care, you know, what I go through. So it's really nice to have a space where we can get together and chat and we can talk about these issues that affect our lives that are so important to us. And we can know that we're not alone out there, you know, and, um, so I just want to thank everyone for listening and I want to thank you, Tenny, for, for hosting me. And I want to encourage everyone to check out my Instagram and Tenny's Instagram and, you know, reach out to us, reach out to me. I'm very friendly. So, you know, I've made so many friends from uh, my podcast, from my Instagram. So please, if you know, if you felt a connection with me today or anything resonated, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm, you know, I'm here for you. Thank you so much. And it's a wrap. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe. If you'd like to share your story, please reach out on Instagram or Facebook or send an email to info at notdefinedbyendo.com. Till next time. Remember, you are not defined by endo.